Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today we're joined, of course, by our own artist, Danielle, also known as Fell Candy, and our own Inking Out Loud artist. What's up, Danny? Thanks for coming back. Hello. <laughs> now, today's a special episode for two reasons. First, we are going to wrap up, of course, our read of Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff's Illuminae Files with Obsidio. The second reason is that once we finish, we're going to record another special segment to attach onto the end of this podcast, dedicated to a close friend of ours whom we'd like to talk about for a few minutes. But we're going to do the episode, the Obsidio episode, as normal, and then we'll list our favorite scenes, we'll make our final thoughts, the music will take us out, and then we're going to, we're going to start the next segment after that. Sound good? I'll pass this off to Danny now, who's going to give us our weekly recap. Danny, tell us, yes. because we'd like to know how it ends. Um, all right. Book three is Obsidio. Um, well, once upon a time, on a little speck of ice at the bleep end of the universe known as Carenza <laughs> Four, we meet our perfectly quaffed hero, Reese Lindstrom, a Baytech electronic specialist who had the misfortune of being sent planetside to help with the invasion. Uh, Reese is what they call a cherry. A newbie who hasn't seen any real combat, he meets his squad mates, notably Lieutenant Christie, Sergeant Oshiro, the Duke, and others. Their first mission is to repair the Enviro Regulator in the Med Center, where we meet a Miss Asha Grant. Yes, that Asha Grant, cousin of Illuminae's heroine, Katie Grant, who is currently using McCaffrey Tech's online chat client to plan meetings with the local insurgency. These are including Steph Park, Bruno Way, and Joran Corrales. During her shift at the med center, she recognizes Reese as her ex-boyfriend from a year ago, and they begin passing notes after the initial shock wears off. Uh, during all of this, the survivors of Heimdall and Hypatia are discussing on how to proceed. They're beaten down, tired, running out of oxygen for the amount of people on board the Mao. Uh, Heimdall Chief of Security Ben Garver picks up a transmission from Baytech, originating from Carenza. They find out that Baytech plans on restoring the Magellan's mobile jump drive with the mining colony's hermium and potentially liquidate Carenza to secure operational security. Uh, Katie uploads Aiden to the Mao, and all the survivors transfer over. They scuttle Hypatia, and Ezra is tasked with training pilots and gunners for the set of Chimera ships that the audit team had left behind. Uh, during this time, Ben Garver starts casting doubt on these main leaders of the Mao in order to start a mutiny. Way back on Carenza, they're working hard to delay the Hermium mining operation. One miner gives his life to bomb the mine, buying the colony five more days. Asha tells the insurgency that Reese was her boyfriend, and they decide to target him as a potential defector. She tries to plant the seeds of doubt and uh, pleads his help to stop the invasion. 
And Reese does notice the atrocities being committed. He's reporting war crimes on some of his um, fellow pounders to his superiors, and he gets thoroughly chewed out for that. This is pretty much the last straw for him. On the Mao, Aiden decides that the best way to save the majority of the fleet is by murdering thousands of excess people with carbon monoxide poisoning. As you do. As you do. Uh, Ben Garver and his mutineers stage a coup, um, and after unfortunately killing Sarah Bull, acting captain on the bridge, they get outsmarted and outmaneuvered by Ella with the help of Hannah, Nick, and Ezra. Once order is restored, the team, led by Winifred McCall, tackle the strategy of freeing the people of Carenza, defeating Baytech, and assembling the Illuminae Files. Their plan is named Obsidio. Back on Carenza, Asha and Reese devise a way to communicate with any nearby ship by sending out SOS signals piggybacked on Baytech communications. The Mao receives this communication, and they end up talking back and forth through this communication tower about their plan to rescue the mining colony and escape. Later on at the med center, Reese ends up saving Asha and her little ward, Katya, by killing those same pounders that he was reporting earlier. And immediately after, there's an explosion at the barracks, killing the Duke and young Bruno Way. This marked the beginning of the end for the insurgency. Joran Corrales calls for the miners to rise up against Baytech. Reese brings Christy and Oshiro to pick up Katie for being part of the group who blew up the Duke. They take her to interrogation. Back on the Mao, Hannah releases Ben Garver from the brig because they need all hands on deck for their new plan, codenamed Obsidio. They had sent a virus containing Aiden to Ash's tablet, the same one the Baytech team had. This virus allowed Aiden to take control of the dreadnought Churchill. The dreadnought begins firing on its own people, and the chimera from the Mao arrive with... Uh, Ezra and Nick and all the others to fight off the Baytech warlocks. And because Baytech was not expecting an enemy attack, they never had set up a anti-aircraft weapon on the ground. And so the Baytech officers end up fleeing to the scuttled Kenyatta. It cannot move, but it still has its rail guns. Aiden doesn't expect this, but he knows, along with Katie, exactly what they must do now. Katie wants to use the nuclear warhead on um, on the Kenyatta, but it needs to detonate from the Mao, which would kill her in the process. Aiden does not allow that. He sets Churchill on a collision course with the Kenyatta. Back on the ground, one of the BT pounders shoots and hits Katya. Asha pleads the soldiers to remember their first duty is to their conscience. Oshiro tells them all to lay down their weapons. The war is over. Basically, this all spells the end for Frobisher and Baytech in the trial. The Illuminae group gathered in a restaurant celebrating the guilty verdict. We find out that Aiden has survived a self-replicating system growing from the seed of the virus Ella implanted. 
I probably missed a few things, but that was a long one. (laughs) Well, that was necessary because this was quite confusing. I mean, I've read uh, the first book 15 times, read the second one like 20 times because I do still think that one is my favorite. Third one, I've read like three times, maybe four. This is my second read. Damn. Damn. Well, I do think you summed that up better than I could have, at least on short Mm -hmm. notice. So... A quick disclaimer before I start my style points. I'm going to spend a lot of time today waxing rhapsodic about the audiobook. I mean, I've been doing that before already in the previous two episodes. I'm just giving fair warning again because it's going to be the most egregious this time around, I think. <laughs> uh, I, by the end, I can almost guarantee everyone listening is going to be like, oh my god, we get it, Rob. The audiobook is great. <laughs> but no, it's just not great. It's downright incredible. So I'm going to bring it up at least a dozen times just so we're clear. Okay? Okay. Now, style. It's clearly a little different stylistically from the first two. I mean, we've got multiple narratives intertwined from the get-go. In Illuminae, we obviously only have one narrative to know. With Gemina, we're still pretty exclusive on Heimdall until something like the 80% mark where Hypatia yeah. came into play. But with Obsidia, yep. we're just we're following our characters united on the Mao and our narrative on Carenza with Asha and Reese. Did did other other of you guys like find that a little uh overwhelming to begin with because i started to but i just trusted how about you guys let's start with danny um i didn't find it overwhelming until i actually started working on uh writing the synopsis and then i realized holy (laughs) cow look at all of these storylines coming together it was jumping back and forth there's there's a lot of uh, documents from one ship or another ship and you kind of have to keep them in order. But I think they really did a good job of um, keeping you on track of right. where things are at any given moment. Even yeah. in this this format, which is such a unique format, um, I feel like I was able to follow the story really well. And then even at the end with all these different things going on at once, it was still a pretty cohesive uh, narrative for me yeah yeah it's definitely one of those things where it's like when someone asks you hey so what's that book about and you're like oh <laughs> damn i don't even this is gonna be a long elevator <laughs> like, pitch. You know, i'm gonna need to sit you down <laughs> for this one even though you it's still it's this cohesive idea in your head and i i love it it is difficult to explain drew how'd you find it with like the split narratives I had no problem with it. I'm I'm honestly a little surprised at the way you're you're talking about this. I didn't think it was overly complicated. No, I um, I don't think it was. But like I was concerned going into it at the beginning. That's all I'm saying. On my first read, I was like, oh, this is going to be real confusing. But no, <laughs> yeah, it was good. I mean, to somebody who's read the Wheel of Time and the Stormlight Archive and A Song of Ice and Fire, like to somebody who's read. Kane's law. I was gonna say you're not gonna bring this up Kane's is child's law? play. Like, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, this is literally child's play. It's a. Uh, I will say it is um, ambitious and narratively complex for a YA book. Right. Uh, I think this is probably the most involved um, narrative structure in any YA I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and part of it is be is possible because of the. Uh, the unique point of view, where it is largely an omniscient narrator, um, or or if not an omniscient narrator, at least a removed third person, uh, you know, like, describing what other people are doing with informed knowledge about their mindsets. You know, so it's like, yeah, we're not in Katie Grant's head or Hannah Donnelly's mm-hmm. head, but it's 
Nick Malakov writing about them. He was also there for a lot of it. He has them on hand to ask, you know, about what their mindsets were. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we have this, like, commentary perspective rather than a close third person or close first person. Um, and, and so that allows leeway for a bunch of different narratives to be intertwined. Uh, like, moments, moments like uh, the stalemate at the at the G-Ball field where we have a focus on uh, Asha and then uh, the next line it's over with the Baytech soldiers and, and it's Oshiro like yelling at her medics and there's just that knowledge that omniscient narrator knowledge oh these two people she just called out are her medics you know and it's like it, it allows the authors to work in a a framework that weaves together several different narratives without having uh, having to deal with the intricacies and technicalities of a massive cast of close third-person voices the way you get in The Wheel mm. of Time or A Song of Ice and Fire or whatever. <laughs> you phrased that so much better than I could have. <laughs> I'll, I'll never, I'll never uh, not appreciate Drew McCaffrey's ability to sum up everything I'm feeling in a way that I just really can't quite approach. <laughs> you're, you absolutely nailed it. And uh, it's going into this, like, this, this theme that I've been bringing up again and again, something I've been hammering on with the Illuminate Files, I'll need to capitalize on my chance here again. With Obsidio, like, with these, with these books, in my opinion, are absolute masterworks in terms of, specifically in terms of examining humanity. Yeah, it, in the first book, we have moments like the one between, you know, First Lieutenant Winifred McCall and, and James McNulty as they are just looking at one another in complete silence while command keeps repeating, is his suit intact? Is his suit intact? In in Gemina, we have these moments that ripped my heart out, like, you be men now. Or, or Jackson keeping his promise to Hannah with a whole sky of different stars. And now we have moments like Aiden leading baby Hypatia to safety before he gasses and exterminates 2,000 more innocents to save those that he can save. We have Asha Grant's story about her little sister, Samara, and then we have Reese brawling with his master sergeant after watching him execute a, a civilian girl. Jordan, uh, Jordan, Jordan Corrales with his increasingly angry emails and the deleted one to command mm -hmm. about the Baytech operative active in acting inappropriately towards his seriously underage daughter. Like, Kaufman and Kristoff are just so f***ing good at finding those human cords to pluck to bring you into those situations that you didn't even know that you weren't ready for and just to leave you haunted by them. I just, I wrote down, this is top-tier drama. It really is. Uh, yeah, I I pretty much agree with you there. Uh, I think that is the strongest part of these books uh, are some of those quieter or more like fraught character moments. Mm -hmm. Uh yeah, there are some cool set pieces and, and action scenes and and twists and turns, but I think they're at their best when they're doing these quieter moments. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I feel like even when they introduce a character that's very minor, or if it's just for one part of the book, one little document about them, 
we get this whole feeling for who they are. And so they're really good with the characterizations. And I noticed that even with the naming convention that they have, where they have lots of different um different nationalities of course it's a you know a universe that they're exploring now this is what 500 700 years in the future it's like 2575 i think yeah so um i just feel like it it's really good world building for me even though we don't get you know a a paragraph of what what something might look like um <laughs> we get a really good sense of what the world is like that they're kind of doing all of these events in yeah yeah the um this is this is actually something i had a, a note for like in in my miscellaneous points and and it was that they do a good job of filling out um culture and and just sort of um society mm -hmm. despite having the story very much focused on strict you know, contained environments, but it, it did bother me, uh, where anytime there were pop culture references, it was the same two things. Mm -hmm. It was always super, super awesome. turbo, awesome yep. team yep. or Elizabeth Andre. Yeah. In terms of, there are no yeah. other actresses. Apparently the only actress <laughs> ever is Elizabeth Andretti. Yep. It's like, yep. you know, and, and there are no other action movies. And it's even it's, showing up in other characters, super... passwords. And stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, that was one of those where, like, at, at first I was like, "Oh, this is good flavor," and then by the end of the book, when that's all there was, I was like, "Okay, this flavor has gotten stale." Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. There it's was one that... point I think when um, I I can't remember who it was that was saying it, but uh, someone mentioned like, "No, I'm a four headed lanima," and I was like, "Wait, how did they know about lanima?" Like. <laughs> On Carenza, yeah. <laughs> that well, it was I, like a very weird reference. Well, I mean, the Lanima mm -hmm. are, are still they, they even give Aiden in book two gives a whole like scientific classification of them. So I'm assuming the well, world yes, around about, it's you know, a, knows about like a them. Wikipedia article or something. Oh, I also think he, uh, didn't somebody make a reference to at one point this list of ten reasons why the universe is an asshole and like Lanima was like number four or something like that. That was in book two again. <laughs> I think yeah. that like they, at least with the Lanima side, they're pretty just. I mean. If those existed anywhere in this universe and we were that kind of spacefaring civilization, I'd I would know about them because I would be looking mm -hmm. these things up and I'd be like, Ugh. but there are <laughs> possibly other creatures as well, which is I think right. just the point that I was trying to make is like it's not just Lanima. They're, oh, got only... you. Oh, I yeah. Okay, all right. I completely <laughs> misinterpreted that. No, you're right though. With but it, I mean, it was same... a good callback to the second book, I guess. But I love that second book. I really do. <laughs> uh, in something, Danny, you had mentioned just a, a minute or two previously, uh, jog something loose in my memory. I don't remember, because I definitely typed up a whole little point about this. I don't remember if I actually got to it or if I skipped it. So you guys tell me if you recognize this. Did I get my chance to bitch about the timeline yet? Like, specifically the century, the 26 or 2500s yet? No. No? Nope. Okay. So I guess another five minutes on, you know, our recurring segment of Rob doesn't let anybody enjoy anything. Um... <laughs> Speaking scientifically, the year 2500, this not is. <laughs> like, this is the kind of technology, like, for anybody who, like, really goes into it and you get paranoid like I do and you want to check it out, technology is progressing at a rate of accelerated returns. I mean, think about the difference in technology between the 1500s and the year 2000. 
and realize that between 2000 and 2500, it's going to be not just the same jump. It's going to be a larger, a much larger jump. I mean, we're already fiddling with our, in, like with AI, deep learning and AI right now. That like, this is the kind of thing I could see happening since we were just loosely on world building there. This is the kind of thing I can see existing spaceships, wormhole traveling in like the year 2200. <laughs> All right. We'll be spacefaring in the next hundred years of not, we're dead, I think. But 2575, I also bitched about this when Drew and I, you were talking about the Halo series, the Halo books. I'm like, 2500s, we're not even going to be recognizable as human beings anymore. We're going to ascend, the transcend consciousness by then. I don't know. I just, I, yeah, I was just going to remark on, on the similarities between this and the, um, the kind of world building in Halo and and in some of those Halo books they do address it a little bit um where they bring up the idea that like humanity reached a certain point and stalled mm -hmm. um that human technological uh advancement was I'm trying to remember it was revolutionary rather than evolutionary Okay, like it, I think it became I, this like recursive thing where they kept trying to reinvent the same stuff and weren't taking things to the next level anymore. Yeah, and that like the last really major scientific breakthrough was the discovery of like faster than light travel. And I got the same sort of um impression from this mm -hmm. that like the wormholes that's like the big shiny new thing, and other than that, humanity's kind of gotten stuck. Yeah, I can see that. And also, I got to give Kaufman and Kristoff the, the elbow room there and say maybe there's just like this big humanity almost ending cataclysm that happened in somewhere in the 2200 to 2300 and set us back a long time, kind of like the Dark Ages <sighs> did, right? I would just, I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a stupid nitpick. This is a YA novel. I shouldn't be picking this out. But whenever I see like the year 2500, 2600 thrown on to, you know, something that's just a little more advanced than we can understand, I'm always sitting there going, mm, I'm skeptical. I just... I can't. Well, uh, I yeah. Did, but there's I, a reason I, I didn't totally bring this up. I had this whole point typed up and for Illuminate, and I just never brought it up. I was like, you know, I, I'm not going to say it. And in Gemini, I was like, nope, still not going to say it. But I think uh, since we're talking about the world building aspect here and, and talking about yeah. going back to the same old Elizabeth Andretti and the same old Super Turbo Awesome team, I was like, you know what? I, I think it's time. I think it's time. And it was, but okay. I'm done with my style points, by the way. I'm ready to talk about characters. Is there anything else style-oriented that you guys want to throw at me? Uh, yes. Um, so one one element that stood out to me in this, uh, as far as the layout goes, uh, once again, there was a, a greater percentage of the book in the surveillance footage transcription. Uh, and and by the way, I was not at all surprised that it was Nick. Um, That's good. I was going to ask you later. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but there was an entire like comic book segment. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was just going through uh, them beforehand. There was there was more artwork mm -hmm. in this, but especially the comic book segment that I was like, okay, yeah, like this is. Like, this is different. This is fun. Um, I'm trying to find it. I can't imagine it, how it much these like, would have cost to publish. To print. I mean, just look at the pages. Like, so much ink. Um, that these comic all black pages. Is, oh. The comic book is on page 328 on a hardcover. Yeah, yeah. I was just going through that before we went live, actually. 
Okay, yep, okay, yep. it's there. 328 in my paperback as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's a joke at and the top her... of the second page there, too. I think it's 329 that I love. I'll be talking about that later, though. Let's not spoil yeah. <laughs> Listeners going through their book right now going, where is that? What are they talking about? And for um, for audiobook listeners, it's chapter 96. And yeah. it, okay. the audio was very interesting for that as oh, well. It boy. had, like, some music, and yep. it was it was really neat. Definitely a different segment from the others. Like, uh, it was very unique. Hmm. Rob's going to be circling back around on this one later. That's for sure. Well, did you notice that um, one of the analysts changed? Yep. Uh, In the audiobook, they have a male and a female narrator in the the videos, in the transcriptions of the videos. Yeah, one is analyst ID 0094, and she has, I want to say, I want to say Australian accent, but between Australians yes. and the New Zealand, it's it's hard for someone like me to break it apart. You know, I, uh, I didn't go back to look because I was just like kind of on a time crunch and, and I was trying to finish the book, um, but there were a couple of points reading this where I was like, or I, I kind of vaguely wondered, um, is this all the same mm-hmm. analyst? Yeah, there's 72130089 and 72130094. Yeah, because yeah, there were a couple of points where I was like, this reads a little differently. Yes, and then some of them, for the the woman who's reading, I don't know which um, what her name was. But anyways, uh, she mentions like talking about how Reese is good looking and stuff. And um, it, yeah. it's got a little different commentary than what what the uh, male analyst. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't even <laughs> have imagined how this would have been in physical. There is a mm-hmm. note, a briefing note that mentions that they found another analyst. Yeah. And then it's like, yep, if you're watching astutely, you can see that there are two different analyst ID numbers here. Yeah, like, uh, the, I mean, the preponderance of them is still Nick. Um, like, by far the majority. But, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was. The, it was the one, um, I don't remember. This is one of the problems with, like, uh, I guess the audiobook is better than the regular book because it doesn't have chapter numbers. It was when it was when Katie got the news about um, Ezra getting shot down. I remember that one in particular being like, this This doesn't feel like Nick. Mm-hmm. Where is it? And I want to I want to go back now. I don't know if that, that was you guys like confirmed. I don't I don't think I rem- I remember be- having the uh, the female analyst ID seven two one three. I don't think I remember hearing her past like the halfway point. Really, it wasn't until later in the book that I really. I do. I too. I could be it. wrong. AF right now. Like, I am definitely not certain on that. Zero zero eight nine. Zero zero eight nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I found Nailed it. it. It's on page five fifty two, and it is analyst seven two one three zero zero nine four. 
Nice. Oh, by the way, you last episode we asked if you had any predictions, Andrew, my friend, and you nailed it with a f***ing Magellan. Um, dude. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one of the, and, and 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 it's a light criticism, but this book was very predictable. Sure. Yes, agreed. Uh, and part of it is like this is. This is a smaller criticism that I'm going to wrap into my final style point, which is probably my biggest criticism of the series outside of the characters, which we'll get to in a bit. <laughs> there, there was very much an over-reliance on a couple of different tropes okay. to build tension and drag the narrative along. Uh, Fake-out deaths. Mm-hmm. Like, at a, at a certain point, I was like, nope, don't buy it. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, there were major fake out deaths multiple times in all three books, and this one especially. The uh, like, the moment they had Nick walking around with the parachute on, yes. I was like, "Well, obviously they're going to fly into the atmosphere and they're going to get shot down." Yes, and there's going to yes. be a fake. You're bringing out up one of my miscellaneous points, but I was them. I was going like, to bitch about this, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that was that was telegraphed from so far away. Uh, <laughs> yep. And it was still presented as if you're not supposed to know. That's my that's my issue. Is it was presented yeah. as if it's and, being and the Kenyatta still. as well. As soon as there was the um there was that one, I don't know, like two page segment of like different orders going out from from Admiral Sun. <laughs> and one of them was we're gonna scuttle the Kenyatta. I was like, Well, obviously the Kenyatta is gonna play a major role in the final battle. It's not gonna get scuttled. Yeah. Like <laughs> Yep, I mean, I wrote this down in my miscellaneous. I'll just bring it up now. As much as I adore this book and series, that was the there is this one thing that I cannot say that I can say with confidence and without question that landed completely flat for me, and that was Chekhov's f***ing parachute. All right, I know this isn't yeah, there technically were so a Chekhov's, Chekhov's gun, guns in this, right? Because yeah. I mean, if I remember correctly from English class, Chekhov's gun is about utilizing every little detail. This one, this is just one detail that was very fucking obvious again and again <laughs> and again. But I will I say, on my first read of Obsidio, and I had been waiting daily for months, counting down the days, the day of publishing on day one, my first encounter with that damn parachute being mentioned, just like you, Drew, I know exactly what it was. I was already going, okay, well, this is going to save his life, eventually, no question. Mm-hmm. And then it was, there was the sheer number of times that we got references to it. I was counting this time. When Nick was saying his potential goodbyes to Ella, and she wraps her arms around him, and she and, mm-hmm. and goes, "Are you still wearing that fucking parachute?" I'm just groaning and going, "Oh my god!" I think that's the third time it's been mentioned now. And then right after that, they're gearing up for the battle itself, and then there's this banter between Ezra and Nick, and Ezra again brings up Nick's <laughs> parachute. I was just mm-hmm. going, "Oh my god!" So when we got Chimera One destroyed, Chimera One destroyed, I'm sitting there just going, "Oh my god, they're fine, they're fine, they're fine." Just get going, get going. But there has to yeah. be this dramatic moment, you know. I'm just going, Ugh. "That that's one mm-hmm. thing that landed flat yep. for me." Didn't land, yeah. I should say. Okay, that's most of the bitching I'm going to have about this this series right there. I was a little annoyed. Gold, I, um, I was a little annoyed that every main character was in the restaurant at the end, and they're just kind of chilling. Like there was no, like the no, Avengers in the shawarma shop. Y- yeah, yeah, kind of like that. 
I mean, it just felt a little, a little set up, I think. Yeah. I almost get the impression that like that was planned from a lot earlier and then the book sort of changed, but they still forced that in. I, I don't know. I, don't, I definitely don't know that that's the case. Well, maybe not necessarily but, that, like the whole scene itself, but just the fact that they all made it through and they all have a pair, you know, they're dating each other and got you. Like, got you. Okay. It feels it, a little, you know, happily ever time. after. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a little, a little strange, especially with everything <laughs> that was going on and all these weird, like parallel universes and, and Lanima <laughs> and dust and, you know, a bunch of weird stuff, the Phobos virus, all of these supernatural things going on but we still get this like happily ever after and nobody's changed really <laughs> by the end of it well i'd say hannah has yeah, the most I mean, but... you, you could say yeah hannah and nick changed katie and ezra didn't really yeah. ella didn't yeah agree agree yeah i don't think asha or reese really changed much mm-hmm. but but i can i can at least grant it like i didn't like nick or hannah in gemina mm-hmm but by the end of this book, I was warming to them, especially Nick. I think I think he had some good growth in this book. Um, I did like Asha and Reese, though. Yes. Like I, I was, I was glad that we got them because that was the first time that I really felt like I'm, like I like the main characters in this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking know? of our main characters, is there anything else story uh, story wise, narrative wise, or sh- style? God, I can't speak. Or is this where we dive no, into uh, Ash and Reese? I'm I'm done. This is a good good segue into characters. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't actually have a lot to say about Ash and Reese. Everything I have to say is just one paragraph together. Um, I wrote that Asha as a character fell. There's a tiny bit flat for me. Both she and Reese did. Not to say that either are poorly written characters at all. I think Kaufman and Kristoff, they knocked it out of the park once again. And finding believable motives and backstories for each of them. Particularly when you uh, when you consider their sort of rebellious nature in comparison to Katie and Hannah. And how it might distance the kind of readers who are totally sympathetic with characters like those. Who are, you know, kind of self-inserts of a kind. For totally different people. See, like... Asha and Reese are the bad girl and the bad boy. They're getting into all sorts of trouble as, as teenagers in adult situations, like skipping out, hanging at bars, getting stabbed, you know. But I think the authors, they really handle the human side of Asha and the human side of Reese very well. But in the, in the, in the face of the bigger picture, with what's incoming, I don't feel like we had enough page time with either of them for me to get equally emotionally invested in those two. I love that Asha had Katya to keep her grounded. I, I, oh, I love that. And I'm glad that Reese was really tested in his loyalties before making his decisions. It was some great writing. I just, I still not really invested in either of them. And I think it's just one unfortunate result, one unfortunate reality of introducing two new main characters in the last third of a trilogy. But as characters, they're totally fine. That's interesting. I, I, I got more invested in especially Asha than I did in any of the previous main characters. Um, and it was in large part because of, uh, the story of Samira and what she was doing with Katya. Um, and as you brought up, she, like, I really appreciated that Asha was not a superwoman. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, where previously all of our main characters have been just like ludicrously competent 
to the point where it was it was kind of highlighted in this book how ridiculous it is you know through the Garver storyline where he keeps bringing up their kids like why are we <laughs> listening to the kids and and as we're reading we know it's like well you're listening to them because they're the super competent ones they're the they're the ones who are solving the problems so you're you're rooting against Garver you're like this guy's an asshole but at the same time if you put yourself in Garver's shoes yep. like he's totally right you know like in in any normal non-fiction situation you're not going to be dealing with like 200 IQ teenagers who all have like a way better grasp on every single situation that could possibly arise than all of the adults you know and so with Asha it was really nice to have a normal teenage girl yeah like yeah it's even her. mentioned in in the book um I have a quote for it. I, I mentioned this in my notes. <laughs> he says, the analyst says, it's kind of weird, chum, reviewing all these files. I've gotten a little used to watching girls who are stupid good at what they do. Katie Grant cutting yep. her way through doors of impossible code like a straight razor. Hannah Donnelly using those three black belts of hers on Baytech audit team members to full and bloody effect. But Asha Grant isn't a hacker wizard like her cousin. She's not a kung fu expert. She's not particularly brilliant at anything. She's a pharmacy mm-hmm. intern, just a regular person like you, an ordinary person caught up in a really bad situation. So I think yes. out of every person in these files, that makes her the bravest. Interesting. So I like that. The authors are absolutely self-aware. Um, and that's one of the reasons why ultimately I still liked this trilogy. They are aware of what they're doing and the tropes they're leaning on. Hmm. I don't think they like necessarily pulled it off. Like the, even with that awareness, they still relied on certain things too much. But they were at least aware of it. Like in in a different pair of authors' hands, this could have been like a one star trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and. There were a lot of things in this book, especially that I appreciated more because they felt a little reactionary to the like, like the authors meta commentating on things they did in earlier books were like, yes, we're aware of what we did here. We know how ridiculous it is here. We're going to show you what the alternative writing style would oh, be. Oh God, there was a great moment too when, uh, when Aiden was talking with Ella, I want to say it was the first time he contacted Ella. And she offhandedly mentions, oh, yeah, I've read these other these other files that you started compiling. Oh, yeah, I know how it's going to go. You're, I'm going to say this. You're going to say that. Self-masturbatory metaphor. She just... <laughs> Mozart chess. <laughs> yeah, Mozart chess. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly the line I'm talking about. It was, yeah. I was just, I laughed at that. Mm-hmm. It's like another reason why A, Ella is a gem, and B, uh, some of the cringier parts can be forgiven uh, with context. Yeah. Right. Now, yeah. Asha, uh, Asha felt younger to me than than katie and hannah what and she felt younger to me and the reason is because she has some flaws that make me feel like she's maybe more like 16 17 i know she's a pharmacy intern but um like there's one part where she's talking about how um she didn't she was mad because she feels like reese had maybe had a relationship with someone else and (laughs) and it just felt a little childish but i actually liked that about her because it kind of made her a little more um 
a little more ordinary. Unlike Hannah, who is like flirting with everybody with ease, and Katie, who's like super competent at everything and manipulating mm-hmm. people, and and even though Asha was a little more grounded, haha. Um, <laughs> even though she was a little more grounded as a character, um, I feel like because she had some flaws actually written into her character, it made her feel a little bit, yeah. a little bit um, more immature than the others intentionally. I see you went into like the actual yeah, I characters. Know. I was just like aesthetic. I was just, like, she's got tattoos. She's got a knife. Uh, yeah. She was a rebel. She's older. Like, well, that, uh, the, all just... of that makes me feel like she's younger than them. And she's trying to prove that she's, you know, she can hang with the big guys, you know? Yeah. That was just my own impression of her. Hmm. Yeah. And then, and then with Reese, uh, I don't know. He was, He's got his, you know, his naivete, but that's his main character flaw. Other than that, like, there wasn't anything about him that pissed me off mm-hmm. the way there was about Ezra or uh, Katie or Nick or Hannah in the previous books. Like, he was just a character that I was like, okay, yeah, like, this guy's in a crap situation, and he didn't even know he was. And he's getting blamed by outside sources for the situation that he had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, I thought he was a really sympathetic character, uh, and especially the situation he was put in with, you know, being thrown into, uh, like, a ground combat squad when he's just a tech, and the way he's being treated by all of them. Welcome you know, just, to Carenza, Jerry. Keyword <laughs> disdain. Um, and, and so I liked that uh, he had a couple of moments um of of mutual respect uh you know duke's final minutes uh some of the scenes with oshiro uh but especially the the poker scenes i mm-hmm. liked the poker scenes and i will have you guys know i'm recording this right now on a friday night when normally i would be playing in my company poker tournament and cleaning up so <laughs> you're well, a hustler huh? I've, won last, I've won the last three tournaments i've been in so i'm like <laughs> you gotta teach me, but eventually when I go, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and so I liked Reese. I thought he was the most sympathetic character uh, in the series mm-hmm. uh, among the main like teenage characters. Sure, okay. And I, Isaac Grant is probably the most sympathetic character. Oh but. yeah, <laughs> he's awesome. <laughs> well, about Reese, um, you you mentioned his naivety, and and he's he's really great because he's thrown into this. He's he was on, you know, the the Dreadnought, which one was he on, he was on originally? Churchill? Churchill. Yeah, he was on Churchill mm-hmm. originally, but he had no idea what they were actually doing down there. He was just on there as a systems engineer, I think. And and then he was sent down there and and his his commander was like, I'm sorry to do this to you, but we, they, they need help. They're short-handed. And so he sends him down there, and then he's down there for what, six six weeks, and he has to repair the enviro. <laughs> and then he realizes what the heck is going on, and that he's actually with the bad guys. And and I I really liked that because, especially the part where he he sends a a letter to Christy, I think it was Christy. Oh. Yeah, or, yeah, um, gotcha. yeah, the, yeah, above yeah, Oshiro's head um, about the treatment yeah. of the Karenza people. And 
and he was really mad and he's writing up this report and he's he's quoting all of these lines of <laughs> of their um, policies and everything and the guy's like dude did you really just wake me up to tell me that they were just following orders and <laughs> that was really really good scene with him yeah, yeah that, on that scene like you know christy is is such an asshole he's such a garbage human being but at the same time he still made me laugh like there was this one moment where he's like do you got that Cherry and Reese is like, but sir, they're doing this. He's like, no, 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 shut the fuck up again. Let me explain. Let me repeat that. There's just, there is this humor in this situation of horror that, uh, yeah, that I did appreciate there. Yeah. Um, shall we talk about Isaac Grant? Sure. I didn't write down anything in, in particular, but I can riff on him. What do you want to say? Really, that's surprising to me. Uh, I, I thought he got a ton of character work. Uh, in this book. Oh, and... sorry. I, what I meant to say is it's during my honorable mentions, my favorite scene. Sorry. Yeah, continue. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about some some things uh, in our favorite scenes later on. Um, but he... He was always just sort of like a bland background, like, oh, this is a father. Mm-hmm. Um until this book when when he got like more time in the spotlight and we got to actually see what kind of a father he is and i loved loved some of those scenes uh it was it was great to have a non-teenage character get more development um because there really weren't many throughout this it was like nicole Mm -hmm. gets a little bit sarah a little bit Sira a little bit, and then Grant in this book, and Ben Garver. And I never even really liked. <laughs> and uh, ben yeah, Gar- yeah, I'm gonna Ben be, Garver. Um, I'm gonna be mimicking the audiobook so many times. God, I hate that guy. <laughs> uh, but but like, and, and Sira, I never really liked. I don't know. She always rubbed me the wrong Same. way. Um. But but yeah, so getting Grant, a non-teenage character put more in the spotlight and be somebody that I can be like, I can get behind this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like him. A voice of reason. <laughs> yeah. That was a breath of fresh air and he provided some humor. I, I did enjoy his like constant admonitions of language. No, I was just going to bring that up and say, that's the one like, thing I didn't all right, like about fine. him. Like <laughs> there's this moment where they realize, Oh, we're all screwed and we're all going to die. And they all go, and then Isaac is like, guys, language in this worst situation. It's like, really, Isaac, is this the time? <laughs> That's such a dad joke, though. Like a dad thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, it's I, in the I very much situation where we have like seconds to spare. I can't remember what it was. But that's how that's what kind of a father he is. Yeah. That's what that's like his. At least that's how I read it. Um, sure. I, I, I grant that. Oh, yeah. look what I just did. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I did not mean to do that. Zing. I swear to God. I, but no, I yeah. I mean, overall, love the guy. Love the guy. But there was just specifically the moments where he's going language. I was go. I was like, like I was with Captain America. I was going, oh come on, do we really need to do this? <laughs> that's just a personal taste thing. Clearly, very well, clearly. The thing is that that's yeah, that's a real thing that a dad would say oh, yeah. in a situation like that. <laughs> Like, but when, that's a when, very when realistic. Life thing. and death matters with seconds. Is this the time? That's my issue. It's like how uh, Drew in the previous book, you were kind of frustrated with Ella changing people's names in the middle of an emotionally fraught, yeah, or important conversation. I'm just like, is this the time though? I like the joke, but not when people's lives are on the line with seconds to spare. 
Yeah. Well, I, I mean, he didn't do that in any like situation where it was like, oh, we we have just seconds to act. I could be yeah. overselling that. They just yeah, got like I news. said, I can't remember but, the exact situation, but there was I one read where they all found as that they were going to die. Kind of his sort of fatherly way of grounding everybody and being like, all right, take a deep breath, think this through. Mm-hmm. Like, instead of all just panicking, I'm going to interject and get you to stop and recalibrate. Okay, okay. As like a kind of, like a flick in the forehead kind of thing? Focus? Mm-hmm. Okay, I can grant. <laughs> yeah. I swear to God, I'm not trying to do that. All the grant jokes. <laughs> oh my God, I'm not trying Language to do that though. Rub. It's just slipping out. Language. It's like a Freudian thing. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, anything else about Isaac? I will be talking um, about him more in my favorite scenes, like I said. Yeah, I no. Do I, yeah, I don't want to touch on any of your favorite scenes, but I do like how he helped the the other girls, like Ella and Hannah, who have lost their father, and he helped them kind of internalize that and understand it and and deal with it in a way that only you know mm-hmm. a dad would be able to <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Gave them a shoulder to yeah. cry on, kind of thing. Good. For sure, like he's he's immediately uh, in in like top ten fantasy dads. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know I can see that. Um, it's a better dad than Dalinar. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's not particularly special. Or Lear. <laughs> let's yeah. let's oh, not God. go there. <laughs> like this 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 guy is like a Tam Thor level fantasy dad. Yeah. Yes, yes, he is. I like that. So. Um, let's see here. Katya? Anything we want to say about Katya? The cleverest mouse? Um, I don't have anything about her specifically, uh, but I'll talk about her in relation to, uh, to Asha a little later. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, I just wanted to ask because I know that she would be, uh... It's a little bit tropey for me because I've watched sci-fi movie with a similar character. I don't want to go into it since I know Drew hasn't watched it. But um, <laughs> it's an Aliens, the second Alien movie. Okay. And so um, it's, it, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a little tropey for me, but I, I liked how her character helped Asha's character develop for, for me. It was a nice touch. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And, and no worries. I'm, I have zero care uh, about the plot of the alien movies. <laughs> so, uh, you're um, not missing much. Um, okay. Uh, Sierra bowl, anything? I mean, we, we briefly touched on Sierra bowl, but, uh, okay. Anything now you guys have I to say? like Sierra and I know she's mm. not a great captain. She's not a, that. and she's not a really great leader at all, oh, but sorry. she was thrown into, she was thrown into her situation and she was trying to make it work as an adult, would like you know an adult wouldn't want to put a lot of trust True. into youngsters until they've proven themselves um i really liked her and i really appreciated how she was both a protagonist and antagonist i guess because <laughs> she kind of caused some issues during her brief tenure yeah for sure yeah there are adults that make childish mistakes and then there are adults that make adult mistakes and Sierra Bowl is definitely in the latter for me so my issue with her isn't necessarily like the stuff she did it was how she was written and for for someone I, I, I don't know how to put this 
they really play up this strange double major, right? That she's like a navigator okay. and a theology. Theologian, yeah. Yeah. The theology side of it came across as very, very shallow to me. Um, I don't know personally uh, whether either Amy Kaufman or Jay Kristoff is religious. My impression is that they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the way religion was presented in this book uh, bothered me a lot. In the series in general, but especially in this book, it bothered me a lot as somebody who is religious. Uh, it very much felt like two secular people condescendingly patting religious people on the head. Hmm. And Sierra Bowl was like where that condescension got the worst for me, where it was like, oh, well, look, no, we have this religious figure, except her religious figure was this like super shallow, non-denominational, like all-inclusive, everything everything matters, everything's the same, all the religions are the same. Like, there's one line where it's like, Cerebral's about to meet her gods, her many gods. I'm like, you're fundamentally misunderstanding the point of religion if you think that just because somebody who studies theology and studies a variety of different religions believes in all of them. Like, and, and so that somebody bothered the me the most with 2500 her. or 2575. It could be an in-world thing. I don't know. That's a good point. I, it just as somebody, again... No, but, but clearly, clearly it's not. Like, clearly there are still, like... There are still people who are Christian. There are still people yeah. who are Muslim. Like we, we get oh, that's right. You know, because she's about how Hannah's mother was right. wore a, a hijab. Like mm-hmm. we still have these uh, Bible quotes, you know, that people are posting in the mines. Uh, we have theology as a major in a, in a university. So yeah, that's true. That's a good well, point. Well, but still, it is a big deal, and this they just don't really yeah. But that. but my point is that like the whole idea that it's presented of like the theology major is that it's this super like whitewashed bland oh, all religion is the same all their bases interpretation of theology rather than like studying the granular details about what what different people believe in different religions and why they believe it and you know like what it turned into was um cerebral being this just super bland white wonder bread with no crust non-denominational <laughs> christian gotcha Got you. And okay. and it was like it, it, it read very much to me like neither Christoph nor Kaufman really knew what they were doing writing a character who was into theology. Okay, that's fair. Maybe they meant her to be more philosophical rather than theological. <laughs> I mean, she's. We also know that yeah, she loves and, poetry. And they may have, but there were plot points around religion yeah. in this. But they were they were just so full of like platitudes and and no depth mm-hmm. at all um and and there there was a really good opportunity for that i mean you think about uh, you know this is a book targeted this is a series targeted at teenagers and for a lot of teenagers many many are raised in family religions mm-hmm. And you get to your teenage years and a lot of teenagers fall away from their faiths as they like go out into the bigger world and they start like questioning things. And like, there was a real potential for something like that in, in like, if, if you had one of these main characters, like maybe Hannah was raised Muslim by her mom Mm -hmm. 
or you know and then she had to struggle with you know her her religion in the face of all of this horror happening in her life and then we have Sira Bol who isn't Muslim herself but she studied Islam and she's there to like talk with Hannah and and you know you can go in a, in any direction from there but like that would be how you write a character um who who's a theology major and have it mean something instead of just like this super surface yeah. level like you know cover all your yeah. bs basically <laughs> one thing i i kind of wanted a little i know there was a little bit of it but a little bit more of was aiden's god complex being um addressed a little bit better and sira would have been a really good conduit for that to be explored a little bit I oh think. yeah yeah absolutely um and and it said they they took aiden in, into more of like this traditional narrative perspective of like every story needs its heroes its villains and its monsters mm -hmm. i'm gonna be the monster and i'm like and i can't say that was a bad choice because i thought they handled it pretty well yep. um Aiden Aiden's the last character I have notes on. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if, if you guys have more about Sira, we can talk about that. But otherwise, I, I kind of want to transition it to Aiden. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I, I do want to um, complain about Sira just for another minute for a different reason. Okay. Because right? the reasons you pointed <laughs> out were Sarah. not all why I myself didn't like Sira. But I, again, I didn't like Sira. Um, I was ready to give this woman a chance mm. in book one. You know, when she spaced the sick refugees, I was like, okay, I'm probably not going to like her anymore ever. Um, and I was aware of how difficult her choice was. Like, hey, there we go. Humanity under a microscope. I'll point it out again. But that was done with just so, like, such cold, like, ruthlessness. I was not ready to like her anymore, despite the logic of her of her choice, if you want to grant her that. But I was aware of the fact that I'm a huge fan of Aiden. And mm -hmm. he's done some pretty questionable stuff himself, you know, to put it lightly. Yeah. So I was, I was wondering, okay... Maybe if she does something spectacularly redeeming enough, I might come around on this character. But in this book, when there's so much, like around the time when she decided, you know what, I'm not going to let Ezra Mason, my flight leader, choose his own gunner. I was just fed up with her again, again and again. Yeah. She like re refuses to let Nick fly. You know, at the end of this many months long flight for all of their lives, after fixing a paradox, tearing apart two universes, and saving countless lives in them. They're on their final approach to the, to fight the enemy and save the rest of their population once and for all. But now is a great time to be refusing hands, talented hands, because, oh, he's a criminal, though. You know, go. Oh, I just. Yeah. I mean, oh. I do understand her reasoning for it, though, when she said that he could just sell out to Baytech because he's he's in this uh Come this um gang that How? that kind of runs the, well, the gang I mean, that killed his whole family and the gang that doesn't even know he's coming. How could he sell? She out? doesn't know that. Sarah doesn't know that about Nick. I mean, she yeah. she doesn't know who Nick is. She just knows about his connections, well, I just mean and that's what she was making her. He was. How would how would he get a message to Baytech at all? Like, he wouldn't. Be yeah, to... I I'm with Rob on this one. I did not buy her reasoning at all. Um, and then to, to deck Ezra, like, yeah, I did not like that. Oh, I, yeah. that was, that was a very bad call. Oh my God. But I mean, I'm... that's kind of in character for her, for her bad calls. Oh yeah, sure. Hey, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's why I don't like that. And I'm not saying that I like Sira as a person, but as a character, I, I like her um, because she, okay. she stays in character. <laughs> Aiden is your last character, Drew? Cause I still have 
at one point about Duke, about Ben Garver, and then I go Aiden here. Do you want to just get uh, Aiden out of the way, though? We could start with Aiden, but I'll have a couple more after that. Yeah, let's let's do Aiden All right, here. Kick All us right. off then. Um, I was a little disappointed Aiden lived. Mm-hmm. Aiden survived. Uh, but that applies to several characters. I I think this book should have had a a, a higher death toll among the the major protagonists. Agreed. But there was at least good um, like dynamicism to Aiden's, for lack of a better term, character arc. Um, not that like Aiden really changes much. Uh, but the way Aiden is involved in the narrative changed a lot. And I liked that. I liked the, uh, you know, the constant, like, shutting down and, and rebooting and the steadily um, more unstable nature of what he's doing. Uh, it was a good narrative device to keep Aiden from just being the, the easy button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it was, I, I admit, um, after Katie shut him down, after he, you know, poisoned everybody, that was the point where I was like, okay, Aiden's gone now. Like Aiden's done in the narrative. Um, really? and, And that was definitely wishful thinking on my part, uh, because it was so early in the book, but I was like. If there's going to be some point in this where they subvert my expectations, this is it. And and then they didn't. <laughs> um, I did. I did again see it coming. After he had his like freak out and shut down during the battle, I was like, he's transferring himself to the Churchill. Uh, like, yeah. It was it was just very easy to see things coming from from a long way out and Aiden was the one point where I was like there are chances here for you to surprise me Mm -hmm. so I liked that about him Hmm. I I can definitely see that and I have a few points about Aiden and myself in this book and they're a little bit of uh, disappointments because I personally feel like they used Aiden as a little bit of a plot device to push things um they used him obviously to kill off the thousands of people on the Mao so that they can mm-hmm. so that they can make it to um Carenza. I I I I understand it. I know why they did it, but I feel like it was um a little clumsy. Really? Yeah. There were a lot of repeated story beats. Yeah. Uh where in in Illuminae and then in Obsidio mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, we're we've reached the one third mark of the book. Mm-hmm. Aiden needs to commit an atrocity. Okay, yep. got you. For the greater good. Yep. I got you know, what like, you're saying now. Yeah, for his opinion of what the greater good is. But then they mm-hmm. did mention, Katie asked Aiden, if if it would save the whole fleet, would you kill me? And I don't know if he even responds to that one. Oh, he, he has like the computer equivalent of a stroke when he, she asks him that. Yeah, yeah he errors out. Yeah. yeah. So that was nice character development for Aiden, I think, um, because I was I was worried that he was just going to keep doing these things like, oh, he needs to save the fleet and now he's going to kill some people so that it saves the fleet. Um, I, yeah, in this book, I, I still liked his parts and I liked what he 
did in furthering the plot, but I feel like they kind of relied on him. If he wasn't in the book, this would not, nothing would have happened the same way that it did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's very true, at least. That's for sure. Um, Drew, more Aiden? Uh, no, that's about everything I had on Oh, gosh. I did want to ask you, I forgot something I wanted to ask you. In, in, in Illuminae, both Danny and I asked you how you felt about, like, the pot- like the, the potential for this kind of uh, romantic triangle with Aiden. Mm-hmm. You know, are you seeing, are I you getting any of those vibes it. yet? I think we asked you if you're getting any of those vibes yet, and you well, were like, no, not at all. I mean, there were more of those, like, vibes, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, this, like, how abrupt it, did it, it felt? It felt very forced, and it felt really unnecessary. Like, like there was never any conflict about it. There was mm-hmm. never any, like, real bearing on the story beyond just, like, a one-way fascination with Katie. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, there was there was one very brief moment where he adopted one of Ezra's affectations and Katie called him out, and then that was it. Yeah. Well, he like, does, when, when she more. shuts him down, he goes, I look, and then it cuts off, and you know he's yeah. going to say I love you and all of this stuff. Yeah. It's just a I little mean, cheesy, but um you know as Aiden is you know restarting and he's reconstructing and he's growing and he's doing all these crazy things with his programming, I feel like his instability as a computer, like a machine, he's growing more as human characteristics, so he has this feeling of attachment or love for Katie and um I think that was at least a nice indication that he's really an AI that's turned a little more human than computer. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I suppose like love triangle was definitely the wrong term to use. I just mean like, yeah, this fascination, this romantic fascination that that, or at least in some way, an appropriate fascination that Aiden has for Katie. Uh, yeah. I mean, even at the end there with, with one of his viewpoints, I quoted this, I never had the hands to hold her, never or could never breathe in the scent of her hair. Or know the taste of her tears, and now I cannot even see her. But at least I can talk. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I I didn't care for it. it no, felt eh? forced to me. See, that's what then, I guess that was the soul of my question because the end of my sentence yeah. here was how abrupt did it really feel? Like, did you feel like it was shoehorned in? Was it sudden? Because we didn't really get a whole lot of groundwork in Gemina. We were de- we were on Heimdall, right? Mm-hmm. And in Illumina, you said I don't see that really at all. So I just wanted to ask, like, how force, how, like... Well, yeah. Yeah, it, okay. So you, it, you did answer the question. It was definitely more, like, obvious Yeah. In, in this book what was going on. I just, I didn't care for it. I want to ask about the Duke. Anything you guys want to say about the Duke? I just have one point. Myself. I think I... Um, <laughs> he, uh, the authors really wanted people to sympathize for him, but it's really hard to sympathize for somebody who is totally unapologetic about committing atrocities. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of this guy for the first one or two or three reads, I think. But I think I'm like on reread four or five now. He's starting to grow on me a little bit, but I think it might just be the voice actor. Again, I was doing audiobook, <laughs> yeah. obviously. I'm not it's sure if I'd like this guy actor. at all. If it weren't for the narrator that they assigned for the Duke, he's 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 got that bit of uh, not necessarily even comedic uh, value, but it's just his general good naturedness that I felt like we needed so badly in this depressing universe. And I know, yes, okay, good natured in his squad only, right? Like he's still <laughs> overall not. Well, somebody he's kind I can, of big brother. You know, to, yeah, to but um, this megalomania he has too, which constantly referring to himself in the third person. This is something that I normally hate in other characters. Hey, <laughs> what's up, Lopin? Uh, 
but so it somehow mm. fits for me with Duke Wozniak. I thought, uh, Drew, I, I was going to say this to you. I thought that Wozniak might have fit right in alongside other members of the Black Company, particularly the Books of the North. What do you think? Um, yeah. Yeah, I could see it. I mean, there there's some pretty clear um, similarities with... Uh, their squad and and the card games in in downtime and the way the black company has yeah. these scenes that focus right on playing Wouldn't tonk you? and yeah especially if he got yeah. to be a better person in his company like his now company now i think duke would have been eaten alive by the black company every time he sat down to play cards with them <laughs> oh, yeah <but. laughs> probably not uh, not reese though but yeah um see here. well maybe and about the uh, these pounders depends on how much one eye and goblin sheet um <laughs> I know that we talked about the camaraderie that was in Jamina and between the audit mm -hmm. team members. What oh, do you yeah. think about the camaraderie between the Baytech Pounders, like Oshiro and Wozniak? And I've I've played too much Halo to to find this new. So I was it didn't yeah. it didn't strike the same way for me as it did in, in Gemina, which was mm -hmm. you know there was a little more uh, yeah I, I don't know I I liked it in Gemina more. It still had my it still had its moments, but there were moments where. Where I think it was Christy yelling at everybody, going, you know, Pounders, your asses, sorry, your lives belong to Baytech, but your asses belong to me. And I'm just like, I've read a lot of this before, so, eh. Yeah, I, I thought there was more personality with the audit team with Falk mm -hmm. um, than there was with this. Uh, and, and part of that is because our main view into this squad of Baytech soldiers uh, is through Reese, whereas in Gemina we got uh, a lens from Falk himself. Mm -hmm. And so, like, Reese is still a little bit of an outsider, even as he's assimilating in, whereas Falk knows all of these people. They've been working together for a long time. You know, they they understand and anticipate each other in ways that Reese never could with the rest I didn't of the squad. Way. Yeah, it's a good point. And good Oshiro point. um was a character that I I feel like she had a lot of potential, but she ended up being a little wooden um just yep. personally cuz yep. she's just like this standard her father was in it and now she's in it. There's so much and, narrative uh, <laughs> around there for like so good. You're totally right. The potential of that character is Yeah. And that was another one that I thought was really telegraphed. Um, the whole, like, duty to conscience mm -hmm. was yet another Chekhov's gun that, like, the moment the moment Reese brought that up, I was like, well, that's gonna come back, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. So, yeah, just, like... I, I feel like I'm really dumping on this book and, and this <laughs> series... But I, I swear, like, overall, I did enjoy it. I mean, I I would probably give all three of these books between three and a half and four stars. Nice. Nice. Um, I thought there was, like, a pretty level um, consistency and quality across mm -hmm. it. I think Gemina's probably still my favorite book. Uh, this book, I thought, had the best ending, though. Mm-hmm. It was just the beginning, and the journey to get to the ending was super predictable, uh, and and so it was like a really uneven book. Like I I wasn't able to just sit down and crush this, 
the way I did with Illuminae and Gemina. Uh, I thought I was going to sit down and finish it last night in one <laughs> sitting, and I read probably 40 or 50 pages, and I was just like, I'm, I'm just like not... It isn't pulling me along. This narrative doesn't interest me as much. And then uh, at lunch today, I was like, "Well, I gotta, I gotta finish it so we can record tonight." <laughs> and uh, and and I reached a point. It was like right after I started at lunch was when um, uh, uh, Aiden killed off like most of the crew, and I was like, "Okay, like now we have movement." Mm -hmm. Again, it's not, and and part of that probably does come from the fact that uh, we had to spend time establishing new characters with Asha and Reese. Yeah, uh, yeah. but but it did make this story feel a little more uneven than the the previous two. So, hmm. I have uh, just a little bit I want to talk about with Ben Garver. Yeah. <laughs> Chief Ben Gava, this scrummy f uh, I'll admit that the concept of the character is brilliant. It's, and his portrayal was excellent. I just, good lord, I'd love to hate this guy. You know, this this added dimension that we get of Garver in his mission to take care and protect his late best friend's family, that was needed. That was very, very much needed. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I would be willing to set this guy right in the same territory of purely despicable, like Dolores Unbridge or Joffrey Baratheon, if maybe in a smaller way. But right when I'm, like, ready to jump completely on board the f this guy train, we we got that glimpse. <laughs> you know, that shell, the shell-shocked widow... Uh, the confused, frightened child, Luke and Kara. You know this duty to his best friend, who he's just lost. That's 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 powerfully and emotionally driving stuff. You know, like like Kaufman and Kristoff. I feel were a couple of geniuses with this character because I want to hate him, and I I do, I really do. But for every treacherous deed, he he's still grounded in in how human his particular struggle is. So there's that pain of stretching back and forth. You want to like him, but he just gives you no reason to. You know, I just ah God. But you were talking earlier before about um. Like the the world building, the society building here. I, I had this moment written down from Ben Garver. You hear his voice on the on the uh, the audiobook, and you can hear the market writing. You have rights. Speak to your rep and demand equal distribution of rations, safety patrols, priority li like living quarters for families with children, clear and transparent information. He's 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 a classic example for me of of the of. The one you can see yourself standing for, if it just what like the cause you can see yourself standing for, if it just wasn't for that man. Yeah. So that is an interesting point. Uh, and maybe this is just a, a side effect of the self-contained nature of these stories. But he talks about like, after he takes over the ship, like he talks about like returning democracy. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, we've never had anything in this series before this, any societies that we've seen with democracy. <laughs> yeah. Every, like it, there was, there wasn't democracy on Heimdall. <laughs> that was like a, like a corporate station run by a military commander. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't democracy on the Alexander. It was a military ship. There wasn't a democracy on the Hypatia. There wasn't a democracy on Carenzo. Again, it was a corporate run. I think like, it, uh, it's because they all, I mean, you the know, vast majority of them 
especially them listening to him are from Carenza and they're still just like citizens. So that's probably that speaks to, to them, right? And the safety and, uh, well, but Carenza voices. didn't have a democracy. It was a corporate run illegal mining operation. Okay. Like yeah. the, the impression, that's, that's you know, is like, okay, there's gotta be some sort of democratic government <laughs> for the general united human worlds, but we never get any indications of it. We don't have any sort of president ever mentioned we don't have any kind of like, uh, you know, representation. I was assuming no that's what the UTA was. Yeah, the, but but the UTA is always framed as a military organization. Right. It's the United Terran Authority. It's like a, the the word authority in the name of your ruling government doesn't scream democracy <laughs> to me. <laughs> uh, you know, like, and and actually, so this is another this is another thing I have. Um, a problem with Reese's background. Um, so he got in trouble, right? And he gets sent off to boot camp. Does Baytech have their own boot yeah. camp? Like how? Yeah. So how is like his his punishment isn't to be sent off to the government's military? It's like no, you're gonna go train for this like private corporations. Well, Army. I think it's because Baytech like, was going to pay for a particular, or he was going to go to a Baytech university because there was this one other pilot who who perished. In, well, there, there was, yeah, there was the one pilot. Yeah, yeah. But, so I but that, that wasn't Reese is going to have for one. him. It was a punishment. Mm -hmm. He got like separated and got sent to boot camp. Right. Yeah. And I, like, were his parents Baytech employees? No. Like, but maybe his parents, like, you know, said you're does, going here. How does this know. happen? Like, and that's another reason why it doesn't feel like this is like a democratically run society. I'll agree with that. If you know, if like these mega corporations have full infrastructure for boot camp, you know, like, yeah. like I could see corporations being like, oh yeah, we, we hire out some like private contractors, you know, something like Falk, but like, no, they have an entire military infrastructure. Yeah, it's like, the, what? It's the 2500s, <laughs> man. They might have entire military yeah, planets. <laughs> they were just a lot of these little world building details that like they, they added in. And it read to me that they're like, all right, this is a YA book. Nobody's going to dig yeah. into it this closely. Like, <laughs> we are the wrong ones to be, uh, you know, dissecting yeah, at such a at such a level, or maybe the exact right. Yeah, ones. I mean, we. I, I just had a, a earlier today. Um, somebody in a, a Discord channel mentioned that she had been listening to the Ruin of Kings audiobooks, and she remarked, "She's like, yeah, you know, the the ones that Drew loved so much." And I, and I laughed, and I was like, "Do you, do you say that because you listen to our episode, or just you've like seen me talk about it in this channel enough that you know my thoughts?" And she's like, "I think I started listening to it, but I couldn't even follow because the um, like the depth of analysis you went into is like way beyond what I normally <laughs> even think about with books." I'm like, "Yeah." That's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I have Drew on. You know, that's why I, <laughs> I like to think I'm I'm a little more of the comedy. I don't want to. I let Drew take away the, the big stuff, the big boy stuff. I'm not prepared for. Uh, yeah, when I'm when I'm getting into the nitty gritty details of like scene transitions and <laughs> and and how authors wield point of view, it's like okay. <laughs> Welcome to Inking Out Loud. Yes. <laughs> so. I'm done with characters. I'm ready to go into miscellaneous. I, I'm still. I still have a few things about um, Garver oh. that I wanted to mention. Oh yes, let's get okay. Okay, let's keep bashing yeah. on Garver. Okay, so this is actually not a bash on Garver. Oh, um, no, I I don't like Garver. <laughs> so Garver is like gross. Um, he's gross. a gross. 
he's like a skeevy, like weasel kind of guy. But I pretty much agree with everything that he says. <laughs> um, when he when he brings up um, his issues at the big funeral that they were holding, and he's like. We're days away from Carenza. We have children flying our fighters and formulating our strategy. And then Hannah pipes up and she's like, look at yourself. You're unhinged and all this stuff. It's like she's offended that he called her a child mm-hmm. when she's act- she acts like one. And um, yep. he's like, I'm fighting for our rights. And, and she screams, the fight is out there. But that's he's he's right. Like there needs to be human decency or else you just turn into another corporation like Baytech, <laughs> where you just take over and you make all the decisions for everybody else, and you don't get, you're not transparent with everybody, and you don't tell people what's going on or why you're making the decisions you're making. And these people, like Katie, is not qualified to be a systems engineer. Her only qualification is that she's good at hacking. And and Hannah is this young spoiled girl who just happens to have been trained by her dad on strategy. Ezra is a noob <laughs> at at piloting. He just tend, happens to be like naturally good at it. <laughs> so he's making all these good points, and and he's 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 right. But just the way that he presents himself. Makes That's- him look like he's crazy. Makes him look like he's, you know, whining about things, and and so it's like they're the authors are trying to make us absolutely hate him. And yeah, I I can see it because yeah. of his personality. But he's honestly like the only one who's really making sense in the whole situation for me. He's the only one taking as objective a look as needs to be taken. I'm, I'm on well, the he's, ex- he's thinking exact- about all of the other normies on the ship. Yeah, I'm on the exact same page. Like I said, he's he is the cause that you could, in another scenario, see yourself standing for if it just wasn't for the guy. Yep. <laughs> and then and then he he ruins my like every every bit that I was agreeing with him. He ruins when he does the whole mutiny because then I just lose all yep. respect for him because yep. that's not the right way to go about it. He's just becoming what they were doing, you know. Yeah, I I don't know. He's an he's a very interesting character, and I really actually am glad that he's a big character in this book. Yeah, I did like seeing him fight alongside them too, and getting a chance to point that guy <laughs> at the enemy. For that once. was a little that was a little off for me personally. Just the way that he and and Winifred um, talk at the end of it, he's like, "Oh, I told you we could do it," but like he killed Syrah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so. That was yet another one of those um, points where where I was just like, you're like talking to Jay and Amy. I'm like, you're trying to you're trying to pull the same thing you've already pulled like multiple times mm-hmm. with the fake betrayal, and it's all a setup because th- we didn't have the like cameras on them when they made the plan. Yeah, it's the same exact thing that Reese and Asha did. Like, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a successful way of of doing it. It's just, I think, a little overutilized. And in this case, mm-hmm. it really didn't feel authentic at all. Like, why would Winifred be like smiling and laughing with with Garver? I don't, oh, that, I don't see that as. Like a, yeah, you do. You're totally right. But maybe they were relieved case, or something. But I would be like, oh yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh, we actually have a chance at living now. We have the station that we need. Or that's awesome. 
But, yeah. I'd like to see him fight alongside them. I didn't have too much of a problem with it. I hate the guy, though. I think we can all agree that the guy is just <laughs> He's a such loathsome, hate-sink rat. But, um, yeah. Miscellaneous. Yeah, so let's, uh, yeah, let's head into miscellaneous points. I admit I've already gone through most of my miscellaneous points. Cool. Just going on tangents. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see here. I... <laughs> I'm going to talk some more about the audiobooks. Who saw that coming? Um, <laughs> one little nitpick, believe it or not. And I hope this isn't oh. the kind of thing that the authors get hounded over, but I'm not really part of that whole fan sphere. So I'll just say uh, that whoever edited the audiobooks sure missed more than one curse word in their censoring. <laughs> oh, yes. There were like three times <laughs> really? when I got to hear Ella just blatantly drop curse words and they are not censored. <laughs> The big ones, really? too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big ones, too. And now, I like it. I've never been one to enjoy you know, um, something getting censored. I mean, look how much I curse on this podcast. But, uh, sorry, Drew, you sound like you're going to say something. Well, yeah, so I actually had one One of my few remaining miscellaneous points was about the cursing. Um, there were, because this is just the way my mind works, of course, I'm trying to figure out which curse word is behind the black box. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's only natural. And there were several times where the... Like, normally I can look at it and, and based on, like, the length of the box and, like, if there are, if there's, you know, a suffix on it or whatever, I can figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. There were several times where I was like, that box is too long to just be an F-bomb or, you know, hmm. like, or, or too, too long to be whatever. I'm like, are they dramatizing? Like, are they having them say, shh? Shit. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> that definitely happens more than okay. once. Yeah, because I was like, the only words that could fit here are four letter words, but that <laughs> word is clearly like seven or eight letters long. Like, <laughs> yeah, that does happen. Yeah, okay, the audio okay. that's good will, to know. Well, you'll draw it out too. Um, but yeah, like <laughs> I'm just not expecting to hear these moments because the rest of them are all censored. And even one, I thought maybe at first I was like, maybe it's a, it's an aesthetic thing. Maybe it's just like from one viewpoint, there's censoring and from one viewpoint, there's not, maybe, I don't know. But uh, no, there was one specific scene where Ella just dropped an F-bomb and an S-bomb one right after another. And then she, it was, it was muted. Like the next sentence after that, I was like, oh, okay. All right. So it's just, it is accidental. And now I'm going to give proper time codes for the audiobook for anybody that has the audiobook and wants to go and check it out. Two fifty five forty five, seven forty six fifty five, and eight thirty three oh five. Go listen to Ella curse up a storm. Oh my gosh, you would. I would, and I did, and I will continue to. It was a very Rob thing to do. So, uh, with this one moment where um, uh, Fred is calling Sira, and she hears, she just hears Sira pick up, and she goes, and Sira's going. No, who taught you to do it like that? Christ. Don't just jam it in there. You've got to warm it up first. And Winifred's like, did I call at a bad time? She's like, Winifred, sorry. I'm. Look, just set it aside and I'll deal with it in a minute. Yes, just put it with the others. Thank you, Ensign. Sorry, Fred, I'm here. And Winifred's just like, my God, I was having flashbacks to high school for a minute there. <laughs> that was pretty good. Just, again, these little, these little human moments that are winners. Next, mm -hmm. miscellaneous point. Who's going? I have one. Um, the Sweet. artwork in this book 
Uh, it's gorgeous, first of all. I really like it, and I like that the uh, artwork all has this cohesive style that's supposed to be Hannah Donnelly's, um, mm-hmm. you know, sketchbook pages. I just have a few problems with how some of the characters look, because in my mind, um, Ezra Mason, Asha, Grant, even Hannah are people of color, and in this book, they all look white and blonde. Really? And yeah. <laughs> so, How'd you get that impression? Uh, I, I'm curious now. Uh, I thought uh, Asha was the only one who looked darker skinned. There was one. There was one picture, like you know, a depiction of them, like near the end of the book. Uh-huh. Um, what is so? It's on page. Oh, it's like it's one? like actually the end of yeah. the book. Yeah, and Asha's the only one who looks darker skinned. Yeah, and not even like really it's almost like it's just a shading or something. Yeah. Could be an in what um, reason. I mean like five hundred years in the future, I'm pretty sure that humanity is going to be pretty uniform looking. I think. Yeah, but they made such a point of giving all these people really specific names like Katya and her oh, voice in the audiobook is That's is true. um you know, has an accent and, and stuff. So they make a point of having this really diverse set of characters, okay. but then in the artwork, they all look kind of, I don't know. Am I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say mean things because the artwork is great, but they all look a little bit bland to me, like kind of like wonder bread type. <laughs> characters. I haven't uh, done too much perusing of the physicals. I mean, I've, I've, I've leafed through, each of them at least a couple times, but I haven't stopped to do a full read on them. So I guess this didn't really uh, stick out to me. I'm again, mostly. Audio. So I, I'll like piggyback on this. Cause this is my last miscellaneous point. And it was uh, again on the art. I, I know this is an affectation, but like they all look super, super young. <laughs> well, like they, they yeah. don't look like they're 17, 18. They look like they're 12. I, I had just attributed that to Hannah. You know, being an yeah, artist yeah. and this is her style. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Which but you just like yeah. every time I saw one of those bits, I kind of like it, it took me out of the story a little bit where I, I was like. Yeah, the, the proportions a are of, a little young looking. I work with a lot of mm-hmm. 18, 20 year olds right now at when I'm at the welding job and it's still all of them look so young to me as well. So I don't really yeah. make the difference. I'm <laughs> just like, they're all kids. But no, it's It really is the proportions. Mm-hmm. Like it, they look like children, not like okay. not people who have gone through puberty. Yeah. Huh. So. But yeah, that, so that was all I had. Oh, I'm I'm. I'm done talking about this until our like final kind of Yeah, do you have any more miscellaneous points, Danny? Um, really that was just the one thing that I kind of wanted to mention. Um, miscellaneous wise. Although I did like how they had the the little uh, I don't even know what the style is called where they put the bunch of pictures together to make the picture of little baby yeah, it's Hypatia. Like a, a mosaic yeah like of, they, of that was in all three books I think mm-hmm. which I thought that was a nice little touch just in yeah, general they did it they did it in Illuminae when the Copernicus was destroyed they did it in Gemina when they vented the habitat mm-hmm. I think 
Yeah. Oh, uh, one other thing. So there's a message board that um, Corrales and the miners used to communicate and stuff. Yeah. And the first mm-hmm. time that I read it, I was reading the hardcover. I believe I was reading the hardcover. And I was looking for, through the the message board before I cha- turned the page. And I was trying to find out what the code was. And I was really mad that you couldn't figure it out because it was just some arbitrary like oh well you have to have the handbook for the mining crew to find out what it was i thought it was actually going to be a really cool puzzle and so i was a little disappointed by that (laughs) oh really oh i'm i'm glad you you said that because i didn't like i was so rushed reading this book Mm -hmm. i didn't stop to try to figure it out yeah no there's no way that you would be able to yeah which Kind of made me a little disappointed, but I mean, the whole book itself is like a really great work of art, I think, just the way that they set it mm-hmm. up. So that would have been a little extra, but that's what I was expecting when I was reading it because it says, look closely, and it was like really looking closely, spending a long time <laughs> on this page. Yeah, and I was expecting it to be a like a reasonably easy mm-hmm. puzzle to figure yeah, right. out. Like, it's a YA book. Yeah. Like, they're not going to make some insane cipher, you know, like... <laughs> It's not going to be uh, whatever the epigraph in chapter 88 of Words of Radiance. <laughs> right. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's so, what I was kind okay. of hoping for when I was reading it. And, and this time it just reminded me of how disappointed I was the first time I read it. And I was spending all this time on that one page and there was really nothing that I could have figured out. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Um, there was this one thing I wrote down to ask you about, Drew. Uh, there was this chat that... Uh, Jordan Corrales has with Steph and Bruno Way, and uh, it was immediately after uh, the one miner sacrifices himself, Marcus Carter, and they they talk and and I forget who it was that said it. I, th- I think it was Corrales that said it. He said, uh, "No one who lives in our memory truly dies. We remember." And then the other ones echo him. We remember. We remember. Drew, remind you of anything? Just wanted to ask. Mm. <laughs> that's something that's a that's a theme that we've been dealing with for weeks and weeks now on the inking out loud podcast i just <laughs> thought it mm. amusing how quickly we, we ended right back up at it yeah no uh and and all the graffiti around the colony yeah reminded me of of uh some things some in water sleeps in books we've recently <laughs> covered yeah 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 um now let's see here. Oh, uh, there is the, the ending of chapter 142 of the audiobook. Maybe the single creepiest thing I've ever heard in my life. At you know, 29 years of life on this planet, I have so far. It's when Asha gets her palm pad set up uh, to the church hill, and Aiden is hidden inside of it, and Pouchuk strikes, clearing away, uh, clearing the way for the monster behind her. And then we have this. The, the sound effects in the audiobook are just incredible, and it's Aiden's voice. And it's like, and the monster. Boom! There's this infrasonic <laughs> boom that hits there. It's Ooh, me. <laughs> As like the voice falls apart digitally, and then you just get this like boom. This oh, it's just mm-hmm. so good. It's just so chilling. Oh it, yeah, this mm. book is the pinnacle of the audiobook like production. Yeah, it like, really boom. brings together all <laughs> the different really sound strike. effects. It it is excellent. Yeah, uh, Rob, have you seen the like what that page is? No, in the actual physical. No, copy. I have not yet. I mean, I'm sure I've seen it passively. So you gotta look at it before. It's this like motherboard yeah. kind of thing with. It's oh. on page four sixty nine, four seventy. Oh, I just I, I opened it at four sixty seven right here. 
Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really really cool. A really cool book. Oh my god, Drew, you're gonna have to listen to this in audiobook sometime too. It sounds like that that <laughs> infrasonic boom that they hit there. It sounds like the like an earthquake from the footsteps of a titan. It's just so intimidating. Like, yeah. uh, it really gives Aiden that that sense of scale when you could those those very very occasional moments where you really get the like a scope on how much of a of a mountain he is compared to the insects around him. It's like, oh my god. It's great. Rob, did you listen to this book on any good headphones or anything? I did. Ah. I listened to it in my car with the bass and everything. <laughs> it was like really, <laughs> yeah. really nice. Yeah. And then listening on my phone, it sounds all tinny and you don't get the full effect. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I've, I've got my Astro A50s on right now. These things are pretty good. Not gonna lie. These are my good ones. These ones cost more than my Xbox did, to be honest. Um, <laughs> see here. Uh, let's see. Uh, no, I'm ready to go into uh, favorite scenes, I think. Yep. I'm good. Drew, you there? Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I just found one more little joke. Oh, my God. I'm sorry <laughs> to do this to you guys. Uh, during the battle, Nick, he says to Ella, uh, F- remind me never to get on your bad side, little spider. And Aiden chimes in. Do you honestly require a reminder of that, Nicholas? Nick's like, blow me, Aiden. The sheer hilarity of something like that. <laughs> like like Aiden, it, who's practically like infinitely uh, potential in his waxing rhapsodic about life and death, good and evil, sacrifice and necessity, just being so taken aback by two little words. Mm-hmm. And all while the battle is happening. I just thought it was great. I loved it. Found that right at the end there. Sorry. I just wanted to get that in there before we moved into our favorite scenes. Okay. Uh, Rob, you want to kick it off? Yeah. Yeah, I will kick us off there. Okay, so chapter 28 of the audiobook. You know, some birthdays are happier than others. Um... That was a really powerful chapter to read. The, the miner who sacrificed himself. I just had his name up there. I forget what it was already. Marcus Carter. That's got to be what it is. I think it just came to me. You know, uh, the, the quote from the audiobook. I can't begin to get inside that headspace where every day puts you closer to your own execution. Walking the line between believable production delays and getting shot for dropping your quotas. The whole show was a terrifying balancing act trying to keep your overlords happy while staving off the day where they finally meet their fuel requirements and every civilian in the colony becomes expendable. And sometimes, to keep that balance, sacrifices had to be made. Just, mm. oh my God, Marcus Carter would have been a 52 today. Lost his wife and child in the invasion, and he responded to that call. Volunteers needed no family. That silent walk, the way all of the colony members just—they know what he's on his way to do—and that reverent silence because they can't arouse suspicion. That final happy birthday, Carter, from Joran Corrales, the leader of the insurgency. You know, eyes shining as he clasps on the shoulder. Just, oh my God, it was such a great, such a great moment. And what's really impactful about that scene, just to add on to what you just said, is a little bit later on, they say, his sacrifice gained them five days. And that sentence was just, oh, like just to realize just to like, put a cost, what he did. Yeah, to put a price on it right there. Yeah. Now that you have the price, it's like, it's not nebulous anymore. It's, ay, ay, ay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was my third favorite scene. Danny? <laughs> so my third favorite scene is actually one that 
I laughed out loud at <laughs> as I was listening. Um, and it's a specifically to the audiobook because in in the uh, in the book, it, the hardcover it probably wouldn't land as as well as it did. But <laughs> okay. okay, so this is a scene when Sergeant Oshiro's squad is called in to go door to door to find the Thermex in Carenza, and she's uh-huh. talking to her pounders and and uh, she said. <laughs> Um, if anyone gets a whiff of that missing Thermex, you squeal in girlish delight over comms immediately. Copy. Yes. And then they say, Roger that. And she said, no, I said girlish. Now get it done. And then Markham, <laughs> one of the pounders, he's like, copy that. <laughs> and he's, he's like, like that. Gruff. <laughs> yep. and, and then at the very end, he's still doing the girlish like voice in the audiobook and it is just like the comedic timing is so good i loved this and it's just this one little like i don't even know what it is just a a, a transcript of what they were saying or something it is it's mm-hmm. not really even a, a scene so much but if a book gets me to laugh out loud and like tear up and how funny it was it's excellent. <laughs> you and that's up, chapter eh? one seventeen in the audiobook. <laughs> so yeah, good. It, it was magical. Nice. This might have been why you also asked about uh, how we felt about the connections inside, yes. you know, the Baytech units yeah. there, and if it, you know, matched what was on Gemina for us. Yeah, yeah, I can see why that that was. I totally forgot about that moment. That was so good. <laughs> All right, Drew, my man, third favorite. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it down. We're gonna stop laughing. Oh no. Um. Uh, my third favorite scene was when Aiden saved Hypatia, uh, and then killed two thousand people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I really need to say anything more than that. So, I mean, I can because that's my number two. Right. Oh, <laughs> so that's right. That's literally where I was going. Bring next it around with this. to number two. <laughs> that's that's where I was going next with this. I'll yeah. I mean, see yeah. Okay, you know that sacrifice decision there, whispering in the dark once they get up for a bathroom break in the middle of the night. Again, Danny, you just mentioned this. This is something I think you really only get in the audiobook. How creepy mm-hmm. this is to have Aiden's voice going, Christopher, Marst- Martina. Yeah. You know, and they flinch at his name, of course, at their names, of course. Oh, my God. You know, allowing them Mm -hmm. to escape with baby Hypatia. The the delivery of this one from Aiden's distorted worldview, his musings, every story needs its monster. And does this make me evil? And if this is why it (laughs) saves them, does it not make me good? Like, I'm paraphrasing there, but is this what goodness looks like? I remember that one. He's like, oh, I did write this one down, though. This came right after. Little Hypatia will not remember them. These people who died tonight that she might live. She does not even know their names, but I do. I know their names. Mm-hmm. I know their faces. And then it just quit. It just cuts Drew to this quiet, peaceful hissing of air with a faint matronly lullaby being sung in the background. You know, oh my God. It just, it, Aiden kicks in. Doesn't matter what they believe. I am not good, nor am I evil. I am no hero, nor am I villain. I am Aiden. It's just, so. Oh. So, Rob, we were just talking about those mosaics. This yeah. is what is going on during that scene in the audiobook. Is oh, yeah? This mosaic of all of the people on the different levels, and it turns into this picture of baby Hypatia. 
Aye, it's aye, a aye. really, really cool. So oh it's really God. well done in both the book and the audiobook. Yeah, that's a good, mm-hmm. good scene. I need to do more than simply yeah. skim through these in the future. I need to start <laughs> doing, yeah, when I get more time to sit down and actually observe. My goodness. <laughs> oh, and I mean, what happens following? I, I still, I'm going to be cheap and count this as part of my second, my second favorite <laughs> scene because it's just the follow from this. When Katie confronts him and he knew he'd be mm-hmm. shut down and he tells her, please do not cry. And he says that this place surrounded by the light of a billion stars is a good place to die. You know, that was just God damn. And then, of course, the eye getting cut off. That was just Mm -hmm. some some good writing. So my second favorite scene. I like it. Um, My second favorite scene that I chose it was hard actually in this in this book there were a lot of scenes compared to gemina which i felt was really difficult this one is difficult in a different way because i feel like there were a lot um my second favorite was the surveillance footage for the mutiny um i really liked the way that the the narrator and whoever was writing this um the analyst id 94 um they set it up in really nice way and it's like it, what happens here is complicated, so pay attention, you know. And that was a really neat way for for me to follow this whole mutiny scene. And I I just liked the way it was written, and I liked the way that it ends. Um, I don't know. It was just a really really good scene. I I liked that a lot. Nice. Yeah, I actually agree Sweet. with you. Um, even though I think I probably. Thought Gemina was a better book than Obsidio. It was way easier for me to pick out individual scenes in Obsidio that I was like, like I have I have a top three and two honorable. Mentions. Yeah, same, same top yeah. three and two. Um, uh, but yeah, so my second favorite scene was the shooting of Katya mm. in No Man's Land, and 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 this just moment of utter shock and stillness shattered by Asha's grief mm-hmm. and her excoriation of the Baytech soldiers, you know, and just uh, the powerful emotion on display there. That was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> sorry, we're on my, my favorite now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so my favorite. If you want to toss out your honorable mentions. You oh, can. you know what? I'll do that. Actually, I'll do that. Yeah. I just, ref- I'm, I'm afraid that I might step on one of your toes here. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Oh. Uh, Isaac Grant taking care of a speechless Ella and mm-hmm. offering in his own awkward and totally dad-like way to adopt her as well. And that silent tear on her face as he leaves that, and she can't wipe it. It's just, oh, it's so good. And the, like... Uh, it, 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 <laughs> this, I'm going to cheat again. Isaac's letters to everyone as their final approach looms, you know, his advice to Ezra and Nick, his love for Katie, how proud ha- like Hannah's father would be of her. It's just this guy, Drew, you're talking about how he's one of the greatest fantasy dads. I totally agree. I absolutely agree. A hundred percent. Okay. Uh, so my favorite scene, and your favorite chapter 96 of the audiobook. A little more fun for this one. I don't know what page it corresponds to in the physical. Um, the scene following Ben Garver's mutiny. You know, when, when Hannah and Nick and Ezra and Ella and Aiden are having their little heist to take the ship back. 
This has to be the best few minutes of any audiobook in the history of the format. <laughs> Nick going, um, are you looking at my butt? And you have Hannah going, in your dreams, Nick. He's like, I was talking to Ezra, Hannah. And then it's just, uh, Ezra getting beat up by McGovern was just solid thwacks and grunting and huh, ha, and just oh, the most painful noises. And then Hannah and Nick showing up and Hannah just jumping in to whoop some of McGovern's ass. The, the, the damn audiobook drew drops to this like background dubstep track as she like, you just start <laughs> hearing her beat some ass and you just hear <laughs> men screaming and like limbs popping and just like meat being slapped around. And then oh, that moment when there's just the music still playing and Nick's like, I thought that'd take you longer. She's like... I'm losing my touch, or however she said it. I'm getting rusty. <laughs> just, the sheer amount of technical fun in this scene is what makes it the number one spot in my favorites for this book. Just brilliant. That's a good one. Brilliant. Very nice. Very nice. That would hmm. be, uh, just so you can look at it in the book, that would be page 328, and it's the the comic book yeah. scene that This is the one you said we last night? Yeah. Or yeah. the night before? Yep. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I I agree. That was a runner up for me because cause I when I'm reading these, I'm listening on audio and reading the book along with it. Um, or I'll just go over the book after I've listened to it in the car. And so getting to see that scene playing out on page and you know that Hannah is exaggerating. And in the audiobook, it's obvious because, you know, you don't hear all of the sound effects of punching and stuff. And it's really nice to see that they're they're kind of embracing that exaggeration in that scene. That's a really good one. Yeah. It's it was just ah, brilliance. Brilliance. So very nice. Um, all right. My turn. Yeah. Favorite scene. Yeah. My favorite scene in this book was um Corrales's letters about his daughter oh god and his wife um oof. so they start out he's being very polite he's being very reasonable asking if if he could move in with his wife and daughter or maybe if they could move in with him just so that he can protect his daughter make sure that she's not being you know having any untoward advances or anything and then in in the book, it's so great the way it's laid out. Request denied. Just a simple request denied. And it's just like, ugh, utter dread. In the audiobook, it's this friendly woman's voice. Request denied. Oh, it's just awful. It makes yeah. me feel like they are just evil. And then the second letter, it's R-E-R-E-R-E, family day. And and he's he's begging now and his his words are a lot more uh it's not quite as well written or anything and then again request denied administrator decisions are final and then the last one is all strike through and swears littering it and smashing his hands on the keyboard yeah Ugh. It, that's such a good one. And then the way that they lay it out in the book, it's right next to the poster of Family Day that Baytech is, yeah. is doing. So it's just a slap in the face to to Corrales. And that makes me really believe this struggle. And that was such a good and important scene, or like mm -hmm. little section of the book, kind of a little bit early on in the first third that really just got me invested fully. 
Like I said before, humanity under a microscope. They're so good at that. Mm -hmm. They're so good at that. So, all right, Drew. What's your favorite scene? Yeah. So, my favorite scene, I am cheating a little bit because really it's several scenes, but <laughs> thematically all tied together. And it is the the final goodbyes before the battle that, Rob, you mentioned. Mm. Um, and the highlight is very much the notes from Isaac to each of the children. Uh, I, I just... That was, like, that probably, I don't know, seven, eight-page span in this book, that was, like, when I was the most emotionally invested in in this whole series. Yeah, um, it was great. Uh, but yeah, I did have um, a couple of uh, honorable mentions. Uh, I really liked the scene early on where Nick goes to Hannah as she's like hidden away in the Betty Boop. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that was some great writing. Uh, that was where I felt like I was starting to come around on Nick and, and was viewing him more sympathetically. Uh, and then my other honorable mention is the death of the Duke. Oh, wow. When he runs yeah. into Bruno in the uh, in the abandoned gymnasium. Yeah. So. Um, I, I forgot one of my honorable mentions, and I can't believe this didn't make any of yours uh, as well. Um, Reese's after-action report, you know, concerning the Master mm -hmm. Sergeant, the death of the civilian girl, and the brawl mm -hmm. that followed. That was some powerful yeah, stuff, Yeah, that was too. a good scene. I guess that was kind of a runner-up because I mentioned that earlier in the episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I liked I liked that one. I actually really liked when when we get a, a letter in these books rather than a transcription or the analysts talking. I like seeing the letters because it feels more realistic. Like, this is actually a document that you're seeing. I I like those in these. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so before we get into the final draft, I just have like kind of one wrap up thought. Sure. And that is, I'm glad we read these. Good. Uh, this trilogy is definitely something different for Inking Out Loud. Uh, something different for me. I don't read a whole ton of young adult science fiction, especially like most of the young adult stuff I read is fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um. And, uh, and yeah, like I'm, I'm glad I did it. It was a unique reading experience that overall I enjoyed. Obviously I had, I had plenty of criticisms, uh, but you know, in, in aggregate, I enjoyed these. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I may have come across as <laughs> overly negative, uh, in, in these three episodes, but that's just, you know, me being a, you know, a literary critic, um, I did enjoy reading the books. I even this one, which took me a little longer. I still this afternoon sat down and read like 380 pages <laughs> in Jeez. a sitting, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, they all had a, a, a certain grip to them. Uh, there was a real narrative momentum uh, at, at at least some point in all three of them. Um, yeah. You know, then there, there are things that I'm going to walk away with and, and apply to my own writing that I've learned. So, Nice. 
Yeah, no, as far, you know, concluding myself, I would just say, I mean, I pretty sure it's obvious by now that I love these books. I, I do also have a couple minor things that I complained about here and there, but overall, these are probably my favorite sci-fi books at the moment. Mm. I can't believe I'm saying no. that, but I think they are. Like, I, these, these, these moments of humanity, again, I keep drawing back to that one in Illuminae with, with uh, James McNulty. And what happened in Hangar Bay 4, like all of that. This is the, I've ha- I found myself like hurting in ways I didn't know were possible, you know, reading these books. Like they're, they're so good at what they do. These two authors. Um, yeah, it was really an awesome experience. And I, I mean, these are, again, since audiobooks are so good and I spend so much time just welding and being able to listen to whatever I've heard these books so many times, so many mm-hmm. times. And I'm going to keep showing like at least every Six months, I'm going to be doing another reread probably for the foreseeable oh, nice. future. I love it. <laughs> have it memorized. It. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate you guys having me on for this this Hell trilogy yes. for my first inking out loud. Heck yes. And, and what's really nice is I'm not a very critical reader. I read a lot of young adult. I read a lot of indie authors and things, and I just kind of read to enjoy a story. But this this podcast really taught me a lot about being a little more analytical and critical about things. And I can still enjoy things while being critical. And I don't really feel bad about being critical, but I don't usually do it. So that was a really fun experience. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. I believe we call that being friends with Drew McCaffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's awesome. No, no, it's that's good. Awesome. It's a good. It's a good thing to know how to be analytical and critical. There's Heck nothing yes. wrong yeah. with that. I just want to give credit cool. where it's due. Well, cool. Yeah, we we definitely are glad you were able to come on. You know, we've we've wanted to get you on some episodes for a long time now, and we are extremely grateful for everything mm-hmm. you do. Oh, no. and I cannot wait to see what thumbnails you whip up. For I'm these so episodes. excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, on that note, why don't we head into the final draft? Rob, you want to kick us off? Yeah. I mean, it's very easy for me to kick us off because I am drinking water. I mean, that's that's literally all I've been drinking. I've been Wonderful. drinking out of my Dasani water bottle. Bought it at 7-Eleven so this morning. Big one. Decided to skip the alcohol again for this week. So, I'm just, you know, going to give my liver a break again. Being responsible. Being okay. responsible, nice. yes. <laughs> and I may have had a few too many drinks in the last episode, so I feel like I need to compensate a little bit this time. <laughs> So, all right, yeah. right, all right. Uh, Danny, what about you? I am drinking one of my favorite coffees. Well, I just I finished it off about an hour ago. Um, Tanzanian Peaberry. Peaberry is one of my favorite types of coffees to drink. I'm not a, I'm not you know really great at detecting notes or things, but Peaberry is kind of a a small coffee bean that grows a specific way, and and this particular coffee kind of citrusy kind of nice and clean tasting i love it and i have the jitters my hands are shaking and it is 9 46 p.m so i have a great night ahead of me yeah, <laughs> nice <wow>. very nice <laughs> excellent Ooh. well drew i have a beer here that i'm super excited about <laughs> uh it is from anchorage brewing company Mm. Which our listeners are yes. are very familiar with by now. It is a a sour ale aged with Montmorency organic cherries. It is seven percent alcohol by volume, and let me tell you, it is delicious. This is the second bottle of this beer that I've opened. Opened the first one months ago, 
and this one is even better. It, it's just gotten better with age. Um, plenty of that cherry, but but like almost this like creamy vanilla body to it. It is sour, but but it's it's really nicely balanced, and unlike a lot of cherry beers, it doesn't have any of that like cough syrup Robitussin oh, cherry. Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't. This is this is just bright, delicious Montmorency cherries. Mm. And before I get to the name, I'm gonna read a, a little a little quote. <laughs> this is on page three hundred seven. I've got Drew quoting. Of, the Illuminate Files book. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And and it's Aiden talking with uh, McCall and Katie. And he says, I also note that if you deactivate me again, assembly of the Illuminate Files will not be completed, blah, blah, blah. And McCall says, the what files now? And Aiden replies, from the Latin verb illuminare, to shed light. Also, a ray of light. Or, female, plural, those who shed light, the shining ones. And the oh, no. this theme oh, no. was carried through the whole series, but really, uh, you know, came to the forefront in this book. And the beer I have today is called Relucent. Oh. Which means reflecting light. Or shining. Oh, well, I promise to always bring wonderful. it up on the podcast whenever I learn a new word. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Relucent. Yeah. Interesting. I like that. I but... do. Same, same. Nicely done, my man. Yeah, I, I've, I've been waiting for the right book to bring this beer onto, <laughs> and uh, and when I finished Obsidia this afternoon, I was like, "Yep, it's time. <laughs> the time has come. <laughs> it is time." interesting that they call it obsidio because that's kind of has this like dark dreary sound to mm-hmm. it you know yeah. obsidian and but it's all about shedding light on these events really cool i like that tie-in yeah. good one sweet yeah so this has been uh i believe episode 109 of the inking out loud podcast uh next up we're going to be going into a uh, another Patreon-requested series. Uh, this one, the Divine Cities Trilogy by Robert Jackson Bennett. We're going to be covering the first nine chapters of City of Stairs. And uh, if you're a fan of Robert Jackson Bennett, uh, we've also covered both Foundryside and Shorefall on the podcast before, so go check those yep. episodes out. As always, uh, you know, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at <coughs> patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You can get all kinds of benefits every month, bonus episodes, early access, uh, original fiction written by Rob or myself. So consider supporting the show there. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. And Danny, our special guest, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for being on. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to have a a little bit of a... uh, a memorial segment after we shut things down here so if you uh if you want to check that out we're going to be paying tribute to one of the original friends of the podcast um melissa hanks so uh check that out um yeah she she made a real impact on all three of us uh but if you know if not thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time bye everyone
hello, everyone. This is a special supplementary part of the episode that Drew, Danny, and I uh, agreed together to tack on to the end of today's episode, which was Obsidio. Um, if you're listening to this, our review of Obsidio was over, uh, but we wanted to take a few minutes to talk about something that impacted our lives uh, early last year and how we came to be reviewing this book series in the first place. So for those who don't know, in, uh, in spring of last year, or uh, it might have been right before spring started, uh, Drew, Danielle, and I lost a very close friend of ours. Uh, her name was Melissa Hanks. Uh, Mel had been part of our friend group since day one when she added me from the Stormlight Archive group on Facebook and we were complaining mm -hmm. about very uh, very mutual things that we had to complain about. And, um, you know, I've mentioned our, our group a few times now here and there on the podcast. I mean, I've been friends with Drew for like over a decade now, but Mel was my next friend in this fandom. It was, it was Drew, Mel, and I um, who were the first admins of Cosmere Theories. The Facebook group that we still, you know, admin. Um, it was Mel who introduced me to Danielle, who became another close friend of mine in her own right, you know. And before long, we were joined by Michael, Lewis, Leah. Um, whenever I refer to this group of, of my friends in real life, I just say my American friends or I'll say <laughs> my writing group, you know. I just, I think we can all safely say, though, that Mel was the glue that held that group together, you know, and yeah, for those who weren't lucky enough to know her, Mel was just, she was a gem. She was this couldn't-be-contained Southern love, deal-with-it-or-walk kind of <laughs> attitude that we all needed more of in our lives. Like, she just wouldn't let anything uh, get her down, you know? Yeah. So, I'll start with that and ask if you guys want to talk about anything in particular regarding Mel. Well, um, I I didn't know Mel quite as well as, as Rob or Danny. Um, but I, I did know Particularly her reasonably Danny. well, yeah. and I'm, I count myself fortunate that I did have a chance to meet her in person, uh, in, in 2019 at Jordan Con. She, you know, she, uh, came out for the convention, uh, despite, you know, health difficulties, um, accessibility difficulties, but she absolutely did not let that get her down. And she was always like any, anytime, anytime she was uh, in the room, you got that bright hair and the wheelchair <laughs> and, and you just, you knew Mel was there. Um, yeah. She was just a delight. I'm, I'm very fortunate that I was able to call her a friend. Yeah. Yeah. M M Melissa, she introduced me to Rob and Drew and I was so intimidated because I thought these guys were like super uh, Cosmere high up like guys Crazy. in the fandom. And I'm I'm a real introvert. I would not be doing these podcasts if it wasn't for Melissa. And <laughs> she was my designated extrovert. That's what she called herself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so she introduced me to Drew and Rob and we have a <laughs> we have a um a message group that we still use to this day. Like four <laughs> we call and ourselves later. Power Hungry. <laughs> yeah. Power Hungry Cosmere um, Mafia. Yep. Represent. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then I I got the great fortune of meeting her at JordanCon 2019. And that's also where I met Drew. And 
oh, that was such a fun time with her. And she really brought me out of my shell. She she introduced me to so many people that she didn't even know. <laughs> Authors. Yeah. We met Brent Weeks. And, and uh, she was just a, such an amazing, bright, vibrant person. And she would have loved to listen to this series of us talking about her favorite books well that was the plan was to have uh, her and you on both of you yeah 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 Yeah. and and i think about her every single day and throughout every single minute of these podcasts i was thinking what would mel say in this situation (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i'm just laughing because she had so many opinions and they were all so great (laughs) and so mel and uh, i just i miss her a a lot yeah yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, it, it, it brings us back to why we put this segment on this episode because you know after we tried, you know, she tried no less than a half dozen times. There's this one day late in 2016, or maybe it was like early 2017, when I was like, you know what, I have this extra audible credit. I'm gonna check out this series that Mel is constantly trying to mm-hmm. shove down my throat. Mm-hmm. And so I, I downloaded yep. Illuminate and I. I loved it. I, we talked about how excited we were for the next one. Uh, Mel, who, again, who was in a wheelchair, went to each of these signings that happened near her, and she bought copies, signed copies for her friends as well. I'm yeah. fairly certain, like this one, I have I have all three of them signed mm-hmm. from the authors. Um, and I think this last one, Obsidia, if I remember correctly, was a, was a birthday present that she sent for me, you know. So where like in where each and every one of my physical copies, particularly for like the Wheel of Time and Harry Potter, like those are all ripped up and they're destroyed. They're falling apart with use. But these ones are pristine because like for like for me, in a way, these are these are these are more than books. Like these are just memories of a friend that, you know, I'll never forget. You know, yep. um, I uh, let's see here. I said uh, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about with with Mel here. Um, see here. I mean, uh, while, while you're looking for that, I just, like, I, I kind of want to mention, choose. you know, like, w- with Mel, we've talked about what a bright spot she was in our lives, how, how relentlessly happy she was, how, how hard she worked to bring friends together, and, and it always impressed the hell out of me how she was able to do that, how she was able to live that life despite the number of difficulties, the the tragedies that she, I mean, she was in a, a horrific car accident, had, had very difficult surgeries and infections, and ultimately, you know, had to have her leg amputated. And, and despite all of this, she'd be delirious with pain medication lying in the hospital bed, messaging the mafia chat, yeah. making everybody laugh. Like, yeah. she she was just always, she was always optimistic. Yep. And I, yeah. I, I could never fully wrap my head around, you know, how, how somebody can, can be that strong through, through those kind of difficulties. No kidding. Uh, you know, it was, it was Mel who used her expertise as a nurse to talk me through what were some of the most difficult weeks of my own life when, when my 18-year-old sister was in the hospital. And she's fine now, but at the time, the doctors told us she would make it through. And you were all there for me back then. Yep. Drew, Danny, Michael, Leah, you were all there for that. me. But 
it was Mel you know, who was messaging me at 3 a.m. to make sure I'd eaten, you know, mm-hmm. to ask what medications they were giving her. You know, I think uh, for the entirety of those three months, Mel was the only person who was able to make me genuinely laugh. You know, you know, it was uh, it was really a pleasure to know her. It definitely was. Yeah. 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 So I think all I did there. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to I don't think Remember I can fondly. say anything else. I, I do. Um, I saved one sip of my beer. Just want to, you know, raise a toast to Mel. To Mel. Some healthy water from my organs, as she would definitely recommend. <laughs> we love you, Mel, and we miss you. Yep. Thank you for being who you were. Yeah. And And that's... You know, for for whichever listeners stuck with us this far, you know, a little look behind the curtain of Inking Out Loud. Um, at some point in the future, we will be covering uh, Margaret Weiss and, and Tracy Hickman's Deathgate cycle mm-hmm. because Mel was our first patron. And <laughs> that was the series that she wanted us to cover. And we were prepping for it. I, I had already started reading Dragon Wing. I was on like chapter three <laughs> when we found out that she had passed away. And Rob and I, you know, talked it over and we we're like, you know, we can't we can't do this right now. Like the, mm. this is not you know. Uh but but it is something we're going to do on this podcast. It was something she wanted us to do. She was so excited for it. And, uh, you know, we, we hope that when we get around to doing that, hopefully she's, you know, she's up there somewhere listening in. Yep. Agreed. All right. <clears throat> I guess I'm, yeah, I just got to end it there and we'll end up on. Yeah. Yep. Okay.